Welcome back to the third podcast of Youth Debate and Nonformality featuring Kostas Dozinus, who is a professor of law and the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at Birkbeck College in London. Stay tuned to understand why being young is like having a cold and why human rights are a paradox of triumph drowned in disaster. Enjoy! Thanks very much, uh, Alan, and thank you very much for this invitation. When I received it, uh, my immediate uh, instinct was to turn it down. I mean, what do I have to do with the, the center of youth of <laughs> Europe? Uh, but then I recalled that um, I spent about six months here in, in Strasbourg in 1975 at the Council of Europe, the European Commission on Human Rights, and um, that was the beginning of a lifelong involvement with human rights, both as scholarship and as activism. So eventually I agreed to come. And then on the business of youth, um, I believe that youth is a bit like the cold. Either you have it or you don't have it. So it is not necessarily related to age. So uh, I hope that I have it. So that I thought it was a good idea to come. Now, what I wanted to do today uh, is to present to you in a rather condensed form a number of ideas, both historical but also philosophical, political and cultural, about a way of looking at the importance of human rights today in the world. And you would agree with me that uh, human rights appear to have triumphed. They unite the north and the south, the left and the right, the ministers and the dissidents, Everyone appears to agree on human rights. Indeed, a few years ago, we used to hear about the end of history, the end of ideology, the end of industrial society. And if all these uh, terms were right, uh, then clearly human rights is the ideology after the end of ideologies, the ideology at the end of history. And it is this idea of the end of the ends of human rights I want to discuss because while human rights have triumphed I mean certainly ideologically and every political system and ideology accepts uh, the idea of human rights as central to their legitimacy on the other hand over the last 30 years and certainly even in the last 15 or 20 years after the collapse of communism, we have experienced greater and deeper violations of the principles of human rights than any previous period with the exception of the Holocaust and the Second War. Uh, so we have a paradox here of a triumph drowned in disaster of a victory of the principle of human rights, which at the same time is accompanied by violations of those principles uh, 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 all, over, all over the world. So it is this paradox that I want to explore today. And in order to address a number of key aspects of this ideology, discourse, and practice of human rights, I've put together seven maxims, seven statements, which I will then go on to explore. Let me start with this idea of the end. And indeed, my previous book was called The End of Human Rights. And the statement in relation to the end is this. Human rights, the end of human rights in, 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 in the sense of the purpose, the aim, the telos of human rights, is to resist public and private domination and oppression. When they lose that end, 
when they lose that aim of resistance, then their usefulness comes to an end. Ideals start their career in opposition to the police. They end when they call in the bombers and the police for their protection. So that is what I mean by the end. I play with this sort of double meaning of the word telos in Greek and fern in, in French, which always has this double signification of the end, the coming to an end of a, of a period of time and the purpose. So I'm not going to say any more about it now. Let, let me get, go, go through the other six principles. The first is that while the state and human rights or sovereignty, the sovereign, the king or the sovereign parliament or the sovereign monarch and so on, and power are presented as antagonistic. Indeed, we have been told that now that human rights have come of age and have triumphed, sovereignty and the power of the state is being diminished, reduced, and so on. This is a standard debate in international relations and international law. So my argument is that rather than being antagonistic, power and ways in which power operates and morality, ethics, or human rights, which is a moral way of doing politics through law, are not antagonistic. They follow periods of state and power building in particular combinations. Every new form of power calls in, has a new type of morality or ethics, and I think today this is human rights. So this is the main political argument that I will present to you. And the corollary of that in relation to today is that human rights and humanitarianism is becoming the ideology of an empire under construction. Moving from politics to the constitution of the subject, of ourselves, I would say that uh, uh, human rights, uh, that um, uh, human rights do not belong to humans, but they construct humans. This is uh, maxim number three, or thesis number three. Four, that universalism and cultural relativism, again, the two supposedly oppose positions and ideologies within international politics and human rights and so on, rather than being fatal enemies, there are, two there are two versions of humanism, we will explain that, and actually they're not that far removed from each other. The next uh, thesis moves towards the theory of psychoanalysis. And the thesis here is that human rights are the legalization, the juridification, and publicization, making public of individual desire. And finally, that in order to turn human rights into a principle of justice, of postmodern justice, if you want to call it that, we need to move from the desires and the human rights of self, of the ego, towards the human rights of the other. Now, this is, as you can imagine, a pretty sort of difficult agenda that I put to you. Indeed, a provocative agenda, because I, what I want to do, assuming that all of us are on the side of humanity and humanism and human rights, what I try to put to you are what one could call the dark sides of our tradition, of our European tradition, including our European um, human rights and democratic tradition, in order to open a debate and have people think about it in the future. I should also add immediately that by criticizing human rights, of course, I don't present myself on the side of evil. I'm not for bad things, and I'm not a bad person altogether, although people may disagree on that. <laughs> I don't know. What I'm trying to do is to present and develop, and I've been doing that for the last 15 years, a complete alternative theory which will allow us to understand what is happening today in the both in the international arena and the, uh, the domestic.
Now, from the six or seven maxims uh, I gave to you, it becomes obvious that, for me, human rights has two major axes, two major areas of operation. One is the international politics, relations, international law. This is about institutions. This is about governments doing deals and so on. But, much more importantly, in a sense, it has a second aspect, the way in which human rights, the language of law and the language of morality, and human rights is indeed human is morality, rights is law, so the language and the practice of human rights is a combination of morality and law. So my claim is that it has a key, absolutely central role in constructing us who we are, in giving us the identities that we have and cherish and try to improve, and so on and so forth. So there is a political, institutional, indeed international political argument, and then there is a, an argument about how morality and law in that specific concatenation that we call today human rights participates in the business of creating ourselves. The final preliminary point that I wanted to make is that it seems to me that anyone who claims that they have a theory, one theory of human rights, they are wrong. Human rights, I mean, these two little words, these two rather simple signifiers, bring under the aegis, under that title, a huge number of people and campaigns and institutions and laws and practices and discourses and fights and struggles and debates and court cases and so on. And by definition, there cannot be one theory of human rights. It is the megalomania of liberal political philosophers to try to develop a theory of human rights. No such thing exists. Precisely because there are so many in disparate and different and even antagonistic practices that come under that title. So then, in trying to understand the different aspects and facets and ways of operation of human rights, one has to look into different types of theoretical and discursive construction and intervention, and any idea of a single, singular, or coherent theory of human rights, I think, is wrong. Okay, let me start with the political part of the question. That uh, thesis I started with, that sovereignty, the state, and human rights, morality, rather than being, as it is being claimed, in struggle with each other, the government and the courts, the government and the NGOs, they are all also involved in very parallel and uh, complementary relations. I will examine that proposition in two historical moments. At the moment at which the modern discourse of human rights, natural, droit de l'homme, or natural rights, came to historical existence at the end of the 18th century, and then today in the 21st century. 18th century first, because I think it is important. I mean, I'm doing it for, as it were, pedagogic reasons, uh, start the 18th century. As you know, the Declaration de droit de l'homme citoyen, the French Declaration of 1789, is being considered as the manifesto of modernity, certainly of legal and political modernity. It declared on behalf of the whole humanity, on behalf of the human species, those inalienable, eternal, natural rights of man, le droit de l'homme, or the rights of man, as the Americans called them in their own Declaration of Independence. Let us have a quick look at the first three key articles of that declaration, which actually have been repeated in the Universal Declaration in the following century, and so on. The first, all men are born, born free and equal of rights. Second, the aim of every political association is to preserve the inalienable and eternal rights of man. Article three, the main, the, the bearer of sovereignty, not the main, the bearer of sovereignty is the nation. 
Now, what we have here, these are the three key articles of the declaration. What we have here, a statement using linguistic philosophy, speech act theory, what we call a, a constative statement, a statement of how things are. Everyone is born free and equal. But in reality, what that statement does in 1789 is precisely to bring about, to create what it declares to have existed in all history. So rather than being constative, stating a state of affairs, it is what the linguists call performative. It brings about, it creates or constructs what it claims to state. So while it says that everyone has a right to this and that, in reality, it creates those rights for the first time. But it does something more, and it is very characteristic, indeed, that structure, that linguistic structure of something that says something, but in reality creates what it says that it describes, it does something more, which is to create the legitimacy, to bring in the new type of political power to create the sovereignty, as it puts it quite bluntly, of the nation. By enunciating, announcing, introducing the rights of man, it also introduces in that same stroke, that same stroke, that same gesture, the power of the Assemblée Nationale, the French, and similarly the Americans, to create this new kind of state the nation state. Sovereignty now belongs to the nation. So here we have a quite amazing historical situation in which on the one hand we have the introduction of the tradition that today is that of human rights. Human rights are the descendants of those declarations. But of course at that same moment we have the introduction of the tradition that today we would call nationalism. Natural rights were introduced together with the seeds, the antecedents of ethnic cleansing, of civil war, of genocide, of racism. They entered the historical scene at precisely the same moment as the two sides of a new organization of legal and political modernity. Let us have a look on the side now of the subject, of the person in the early modernity. These rights say that they are given to all men. Forget women for the time being, because women did not exist at that point. We'll come back to that later. Uh, I'm now giving the formal analysis for it. To all men. They're given to all men, they belong to all men. But of course, the only beneficiary real beneficiary of those rights is the citoyen. It is the French national or the American citizen under the American Declaration and Bill of Rights. So you have the introduction of this second bipolarity between the man, l'homme, and the citizen, the citoyen. Rights, human rights belong to man on account of his humanity, but the only real beneficiaries of rights certainly until the last 40 or 50 years, the modern human rights movement, are the citizens of the state who get legal and political entitlement, civil and political rights under the constitutions, the laws, the common law in England, and so on. So you have this distinction, man, citizen. What lies in between? The alien, today the refugee. The alien, for France the Englishman, for England, the Frenchman, and of course, the Nigerian, the Indian, the Pakistani, and so on, is someone who does not have rights because he's not a citizen, and only citizens get legal and political rights. But because he does not have rights, because he's not a citizen, he's also a lesser human being. One is more or less human to the extent that one has more or less rights. Indeed, now, within a globalized world, that line of passage, that boundary between man and citizen, is precisely the moving alien, not just the alien, the moving alien, the refugee. And in a globalized world in which there is no one 
that someone can hide herself, can get legal rights, except for the 150, whatever, 60 state jurisdictions all over the world, if you are a refugee or a moving alien or a legal immigrant or whatever other terms we have developed to describe that particular existential position, you have absolutely no rights or indeed extremely few rights at all. Indeed, philosophically speaking, you can claim that human rights do not exist. Why am I saying that? Because if the claim around human rights is that it is given to people not on account of membership of particular associations or groupings or classes which are narrower than humanity, if human rights are given to people on account of the fact that they are human rather than Englishmen or French women or Nigerian or members of a particular class, clan or party, then clearly refugees who do not have the protection of their home country and have not entered into the protection of the receiving state as yet are pure humans. They don't have legal and political rights, but in theory they should have those rights that humanity gives its own on account of the fact that they're members of humanity. And of course, as we know, those people who have no state protection and legal entitlements, those refugees or those prisoners in Guantanamo May and Abu Ghraib and Belmarsh in my own country, back in Britain, those are the people who one could say, to use a term uh, very um, well-known these, these days, just bare life. They have absolutely no legal political recognition. And it is to that extent that I would say that precisely one can claim that human rights do not exist because the test for seeing whether human rights exist or not is the test of what rights those people who have no state protection, no legal protection, no civil and political rights given by constitutions and state, and state laws and so on have at any one point. Let me now move to the current year, 2006. I believe that the political, social, and economic system we have seen developing over the last 10 or 15 years brings together, again, a new type of power and a new type of ethics or morality. So we have the same formal move. Structurally, the same thing is happening as it happened at the end of the 18th century, when we had the creation of the modern nation-state. Although, of course, there is a different substance. The different things that today count or act as power and different things that are seen as morality or ethics. Indeed, mainly human rights. So I would say that the new world order that you know, we are uh, living its birth at the minute has four major characteristics. And here I'm speaking mainly from a normative, you know, coming from law, from legal philosophy, from political philosophy. I'm just looking more at the legal, ethical, normative aspect. The first characteristic it is, it, it is that it presents itself, the new world order presents itself as a moral order. A moral order, an order that follows moral rules that take a certain weak legal gloss. Human rights and humanitarian. That is the first characteristic. The second is that this new world order is characterized by structural radical asymmetry. Asymmetry, a huge imbalance of power, military, economic, technological, mediatic or ideological, between the hegemonic powers within this order, mainly the Americans and to extend the Brits, the Anglo part of the New World Order, and then the rest of the world. I'll come back to that. The third is that the territorial principle, which totally established the politics and the boundaries of modernity, of course, here in Strasbourg, as you know, we're right next to Germany, Strasbourg, 
I mean, they used to say, is it French, is it German? They would say, okay, let's look which year of the 20th century it is, and then according to the year, it was either French or German. But there were boundaries. There was boundaries between France and Germany. So the whole of modern political organization is based on this idea of territoriality, that we have clearly defined limits, frontiers, political, occasionally geographical. Here, of course, the river. And that principle of territoriality, the idea that power has a locus, a, a place, is being, I think, it is being weakened and it is being replaced by space. That the power and the ethics of the new order is organized and acts out itself on planes of activity which take no longer any, uh, any great uh, uh, interest in political or geographical boundaries and so on. Of course, as a result of that, there's no outside the new spatial organization of the world. Everyone is inside. So those who are seen as enemies of this particular political and social and economic organization of the world are, of course, the elements within, because there's no without. The without is as well the moon, it is, you know, other stars, it is not within Earth. And as enemies within, of course, are treated not as political enemies, but as criminals, as people uh, against whom police action uh, is, uh, is uh, exercised and who the job of power is to prevent, detect, arrest them, send them to court. So we have a kind of sort of um, bringing together of war and police action and the legalization of the, uh, of the enemies as criminals. Okay, let me have a quick look at those four elements. The first I said is this idea that human rights, of course, are now the great moral order, you know, the set of principles that follow the new organization of power in the um, in the in the world today, what happened over the last thirty years, without people noticing, in the last five years they have started noticing, is that we had an extensive introduction of global economic rules, rules regulating trade, investment, aid, copyright, intellectual property. And those rules basically have created what one would call a world capitalist economy. Those rules, as I said, went unremarked for a long period of time. And Robert Cooper, an advisor to the British government, has called this new organization, this new regulation of the global economy, a voluntary imperialism. I quote. What is needed is a new kind of imperialism, one acceptable to a world of human rights and cosmopolitan values. Indeed, he went up to argue that amongst ourselves in the West, we should keep the law. But when operating in the jungle, the rest of the world, or the jungles in our inner cities, we must also use the laws of the jungle. Now, we had parallels of this development in early capital. You had first in the 13th, 14th century the creation of rules to legal rules to regulate uh, property and contract law and labor law. And then in a later stage, in the 16th, 17th, of course, in the 18th century, the creation of those civic and political rights that created the modern political systems I was talking about earlier. Similar today, what is happening? is that after the legal regulation of the economic space through all these rules for aid, trade, intellectual property, and so on, we have the development of a universal code of ethics, of semiotics, of language and law, which, as in the early, uh, early capitalism, will put together the new citizen of the world order. And that new citizen would be a world citizen, a highly moralized citizen, 
highly regulated, but also hugely materially differentiated, despite the claims being made on behalf of the new order that eventually everyone from London to Lahore and from Helsinki to Hanoi are going to have exactly the same rights and the same, um, the same um, uh, material, uh, material life and so on and so forth. The only reason why Europe was in a position to turn those limited civil and political rights of the great revolutions of the 18th century into material rights, in other words, into social and economic rights, into benefits, into the welfare state, and so on. The all, or the main reason was precisely the huge flows of capital from the colonies to the center, to Europe. That is not being discussed at all in those debates about aid and trade and how we're going to help, you know, sort of the other people. In order to have a, an equalization, not equalization, even a shortening of the obscene gap between us and sub-Saharan Africa, the only way to do that is not through aid and trade and all these things that we hear by the do-goods of the world. It is through substantial reverse flows of capital from Europe and the, uh, North America to the global south. And of course, as we know, politically, that will not happen. It will not happen. And as people start realizing, those people of the global south who were told that if you adopt free markets, human rights, good governance, and so on, through internal economic uh, uh, operations, you are going to increase your standard of living and come closer to the West. When they realize, and it's absolutely, I think, inevitable that this will happen soon, it has started happening, that those are fraudulent statements and promises, then of course they will do exactly what the Spaniards did when the Napoleonic armies went into Spain trying to spread reason. Because Napoleon, as you know, Hegel, the philosopher, called Napoleon the spirit on horseback. Because Napoleon and his armies were spreading the French rationalist principle to the world, they were modernizing the world. So the Spaniards, the reactionary Catholic Spaniards who were arrested, who were taken prisoners by the Varsi Napoleonic armies, would put up banners saying, down with freedom. And that is exactly what's happening today in parts of the world, down with human rights. Because the claim that somehow if you adopt human rights, democracy, the free market, you are going to have BMWs and, you know, aga uh, ovens in your houses, that is not going to happen. Indeed, the new lingua franca of unified ethics, law, and language, semiotics, forgets its founding injustice. The founding injustice, all law is always founded on injustice. All law is founded on violence. I mean, you can think about every modern state. Every modern state came out of like revolution, coup d'etat, secession from empire, and so on. There is violence at the birthplace of law. The violence of this order that we're discussing now is precisely the a, a kind of violence that is totally invisible to uh, uh, representatives, you know, sort of in parliaments and uh, the European Commission and so on. It is the violence which means that we in North Europe have a life expectancy of 80 years, while in Sub-Saharan Africa they have a life expectancy of 35 years. The violence which means that 40,000 kids die every day in the world from malnutrition or lack of food and water. Now, you heard about humanitarian interventions. You heard about going to Kosovo, to Iraq, or to Bosnia to save people from violations of human rights. Have you ever heard any intervention trying to impose upon the pharmaceutical companies the basic duty to sell drugs against AIDS, or drugs against malaria, or the drugs and the food which is necessary for those 50,000 kids not to die every day? Of course, no. Because these are not seen as humanitarian causes. These are things that, of course, our Western neoliberal capitalist ideology sees them as natural. 
as something that happens, you know, sort of like that. It is, you know, sort of an act of God, an act of nature. So you will never see humanitarian interventions to treat and to deal with those humanitarian catastrophes with a much greater than anything that Saddam did in Iraq or Milosevic did in Kosovo. Indeed, as always, universal claims, the universal claim to human rights is being announced declared, pronounced, put out in the world by a particular. It is always a particular that declares the representative of the universal and takes the universal out in the streets or around other cities and other states. In early modernity, it was France. I mentioned Napoleon, who took the idea of the rights of man, what alone, to take them, took them and tried to export them through military activity to the rest of Europe. Today, of course, it is the United States. And as in every instance in which a particular declares the universal, a particular, the United States, declares the universal, what are the human rights of the whole humanity, of the whole world? The particular can place itself towards the universal in two positions. One is to take an opt-out clause to say, because I am declaring the, the universal, I'm not under its regulation and its brief. And that is what is happening in relation to the International Criminal Court. The Americans, who are the great proponents of universalism and human rights, are also the state alongside with Libya, Iraq, and Iran, which did not sign the treaty establishing the only real universalist institution, the International Criminal Court, indeed had done everything in their power to try and stop it in relation to themselves, not in relation to everyone else. Yugoslavia, as you know, was, uh, was uh, told that unless they, they surrender Milosevic, they wouldn't get the aid that had been, uh, had been promised to them. And they surrendered Milosevic. Now, as you know, only like weeks ago, the negotiations between Serbia and the European Union came to an end because Mladic was not delivered up to the Hague. So there you have it. Everyone else comes under the jurisdiction of universalism, except for the one agent who proclaims the universal, and that is the United States. The second way that the particular can place itself in relation to the universal is to demand the absolute power to define the universal in any in the way that it it, it, uh, it, it sees uh, itself as correct, right, and so on, and that we see in the area of international law all the time. The American State Department always claims to know how to interpret international law, even again what the unanimity of international law says. That was the case in relation to the war in Iraq. Everyone said it was illegal. The Americans went ahead and did it. The same in relation to Guantanamo Bay. Every international lawyer has said that the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay should be given certain basic rights, and pretty basic they are indeed, that the Geneva Convention in relation to war prisoners introduces. However, the Americans came up with that definition of unlawful competence, a term that did not exist in international law, and again claimed that this is the one, uh, the, the one and only uh, way of interpreting the, the law. So that was the point that I wanted to make in relation to what is happening today with human rights in the international field. Very briefly to go to my second point about this asymmetry, the dissymmetry, the imbalance that exists and to look at it specifically in relation to military activities and the law relating to military activities. As you know that the extensive use of technology has been hailed all over the Western world as a great humanization of warfare. That you know, now we have smart bombs, we have you know, laser-guided missiles, you know, they go straight you know, sort of to, the, to the target uh, and so on. Uh, and therefore, you know, sort of, we avoid collateral damage. However, it is very clear from what happened in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Yugoslavia, and now Iraq, that we have a very a clear hierarchization 
prioritization of the value of life. The American bombers in all three places flew at such altitudes that could never be reached by anti-aircraft um, defenses. As a result of that, the so-called collateral damage increased hugely because the accuracy of these weapons from 20,000 feet is not as good as they were further down. So what you had there was a quite obvious and clear statement that the life of one of our pilots is many times more important than the, life, the lives of those on the ground. And as a result of that, you could say that those wars, wars conducted from that planetary, from that space, from those planes of spatial operation, as we had in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, are not really wars, but a kind of hunting. It is hunting, because one side can kill the other, but it can never suffer any victims, except, of course, if they go to the ground. Indeed, one could say that our recent wars have taken the form of brief and violent raids. Again, a totally new type of war. You remember when the Iraq war started, we had the three days of the shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. Now, to my mind, this shock and awe tactic was military to a certain extent, but to another large extent was purely ideological. It was done for our benefit, for us, the West, the rest of the world, to see what the United States can do to their opponents. It was a forceful, a powerful attack, a striking out and tacting out that did not appear to have any immediate, um, any immediate strategic importance. Of course, those of you who have studied philosophy, you would know that shock and awe is a politician's or a military strategist's term for what the philosophers call the sublime. The sublime is something which strikes you, takes you in, without being able to respond. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, calls the sublime the presentation of the non-representable. And he gives various examples about icons of gods in Egypt, in India, and so on, that you, you have somehow to represent something which is totally beyond human understanding, human imagination, human visi uh, visualization, and you use the, the different symbols. Now, that seemed to me to be the shock and toss strategy. It was to strike with all this force so that we know that there is nothing that can stop, nothing that can restrain or limit or restrict that power, that force of nature that appears to be the, um, uh, the, the American military machine. And we had a similar strategy in relation to torture. Do you remember when the first images of torture from Abu Ghraib uh, were released? There was huge shock around the world, particularly the pictures of women, and Lindy England became the symbolic uh, woman, uh, torturing people, doing something that women are not supposed to do. We see as both shocking but also titillating. Linda England doing this. Now, of course, if you uh, surf the internet today, you will find loads and loads of uh, websites where you learn how to do a Linda. Indeed, lots of websites in which people, indeed, you know, kill themselves doing So Lindy has been domesticated. Indeed, only last February, no, a couple of months ago, we had a huge new tranche of pictures, 1,500 pictures, that were taken, not released, were leaked to the American press, but of course they didn't make our press, not even the American press, nowhere. There were kind of, sort of third page short articles about new pictures, pictures of huge abuse again, pictures referring to dead bodies, dead animals, but also totally normalized. People were clipping their, uh, their nails, you know, while someone at the back, you know, sort of was beating someone to death and so on. So we have again here this aspect of normalization, of this total brutality of the torture that has taken place. And this normalization, of course, 
has passed even within the academic and scholarly circles, where a number of American academics, but also some Europeans, have tried to argue under what circumstances that torture can be justified, and so on and so forth. Again, my argument is that here we have practices which clearly have a much wider effect, and certainly their stakes are much wider than the number of people who are being tortured in a book rape or under rendition in the various torture centers around the world. To a certain extent, it is happening for us. The American definition of torture, as you know, in that infamous memo written by the Deputy Attorney General Gay Biden, is that acts that do not amount to death or serious organ failure but they're just inhuman, do not amount to torture. Again, against the, you know, the international law position, the position of the European Court of Human Rights, and as I said, I was here working and I was involved in one of the first cases on torture in human treatment. So what is happening, according to that definition, is that to act inhumanly towards your target is okay. Torture is to in a sense, turn the other into a non-human. Not inhuman action, but non-human action. And here I would say and finish this point something, again, slightly provocative. It seems to me that what is happening today in the Western world, the way that politics and power operates, is that we have moved to a kind of combination of power, knowledge, and the body, something that uh, various theories have called biopower or biopolitics. The idea that in a sense, you know, we accept our subjection by power mechanisms, the way that the world operates, to the extent that we can stand outside the same shops, buy the same Nike boots and the same T-shirts and eat the same McDonald's. That somehow what is important today is not so much ideas, ideologies, human rights campaigns, but the controlling, the discipline and controlling of the body, bodily functions and bodily activities, and ideas have gone away. Now, this is another extreme position. Why I'm putting it to you today, however, it seems to me that both in those shock and awe tactics of the bombing and the shock and awe tactics of the torture, what comes through is this idea, to a certain extent, that we become human or post-human today in a post-modern world through operations of power which are inhuman, which are operations upon a body, upon a bare life, upon a bare, as it were, you know, sort of fleshy substance, uh, upon our bodily substance, and through those operations we become who we are. Finally, in relation to this point, let me say a few words now about humanitarianism, the way that it applies now here in the West. 2005, the major Live Aid party in Hyde Park, Chris Martin of Coldplay, opened Live Aid by saying thank you for coming to the greatest ever event in the history of the world. That was the greatest ever event in the history of the world, Live Aid and the other eight uh, concerts that took place all over. <laughs> you can make your own judgments and bonus statements that here, you know, we are for justice, we are not for charity, and so on. But what these events showed, certainly to me, was that this one humanity with this set of human rights that, you know, we're all entitled to because we're human, is actually split. It is split between a part of humanity who are the victims and another part who are the rescuers. And then that part of humanity, the victim part of humanity, is also again internally split between the real victims and the evildoers who are in that part of the world. Let me say a few things about all this. Humanity as the victim. You know all that. Indeed, in Live Aid, you had next to the beautiful the Madonnas and the, uh, some of the older bands were okay, but 
But anyway, we had the Who and, uh, yeah, a few good bands. But, I mean, you had the bands, and then you had, you know, those pictures of the suffering victims of famine in Africa, of AIDS in South Africa, of, you know, the war in Somalia and, uh, and Africa and Sri Lanka and so on. So you had a sense that this other part of humanity is an indistinct mass. It is a horde of despairing, dispirited people. They are faceless. They are nameless. They have no activism. They are all pathetic and passive. They are victims. They are massacred Tutsis, trafficked refugees, gassed Kurds, and so on and so forth. So you had that part of humanity that was out there. But of course, within that part of humanity, there was that secondary split between the victims and the evil ones. It was the butcher of Baghdad. It was the murder of uh, Belgrade. It was the, um, the Slav torturer, the Balkan rapist, and so on and so forth. Somehow, that part of humanity, because it is fallen, deserves what it gets. It begets its own evil doers, its own torturers and rapists and bad people and evil people, and so on, and then deserves. It is an act of God that they go through famine, through tsunamis, and of course through civil war, through AIDS, through malaria, through uh, lack of water. And of course, on the other side, we the rescuers. We the rescuers, because we stand against the nameless victim, we acquire name and individuality. Because we stand against the evil, we become virtuous. Because we stand against that nameless badness and suffering and sin of the other part of the world, we become who we are. And this is where I feel, I mean, if you look at the results of these um, campaigns, um, they're quite minimal in terms of the effects, the collateral good, let us call it, that they have in the global but clearly, their huge importance means that the stakes have something to do with that. It is how we, as the Westerners, as the rescuers, become individualized and acquire our own identities through that. We are moving now from politics into what we would call the creation of subject. And I'll go directly to something that you'll find probably a little more extravagant and strange, and that is the theory of psychoanalysis. Now, if you look at those um, grand declarations of the 18th century, clearly there were two key aspects involved in that. I mean, people would say freedom and equality. I would call it emancipation and self-fulfillment. Emancipation, which is to become free from, of course, state, medieval, feudal, power organization, religious uh, prejudice, religious ignorance and so on, the idea of freeing oneself, and then the second idea, which you find very well declared in the American Declaration of Independence, where the rights are defined in the preamble as the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the American dream, the California dreaming was already there. But that is, for me, the second aspect, the idea of rights being there to allow you to be yourself, to become yourself, to be who you are, be you. I mean, you know, uh, you know, acquire your real authentic self or allow your real authentic self in some kind sort of Buddhist kind of way, you know, come out and get recognized. Now, it seems to me that in our Western societies, I mean, in very many parts of the world, the business of emancipation, of freeing, groups and class individuals from the different types of oppression that still operate is quite central. I mean, one of my books was translated in Chinese, and you know, when I went to China to give a number of uh, lectures at 15 universities, of course, there, you know, I was not in the same way critical of human rights as I'm here, precisely because I said at the beginning, I don't believe that there is one single theory of human rights. Human rights are always situated. There is a certain circumstantial, topical uh, aspect to them. And of course, in China or in Colombia, there is still, or in Burma, there is a question of basic machine. 
But here in our Western societies, and again, if we exclude, which is a huge exclusion and it is wrong to make, but for argument's sake, we exclude the excluded, how can we do that? Well, we exclude the excluded, the confused, the homeless, the underclasses, the, the, the unemployed, and so on. If we were to exclude those, we could say that, you know, sort of amongst the rest of us, the seduced, the great mass of seduced, not the great unwashed, but the great mass of seduced, are in the West. The question now is self-fulfillment, happiness, the right to happiness. And it is there that I'm saying that human rights has become an absolutely central tool in that business of happiness, and that is a little problematic. Now, I can give you the references and so on, but let me say very briefly. From the philosophy of the great German philosopher Hegel, we understand that our subjectivity, who I am, is always created intersubjectively, in relations with my friend Thomas here, with the other. I become who I am because someone recognized me as something. I become clever, or I become beautiful, or I have this or that characteristic because someone who has that characteristic, I think that has that characteristic, recognize me as a person of that type. So then the business of identity, what you discussed in your conference here, how we create ourselves, it is always involved in those, in those uh, you know, sort of encounters, encounters with other people, and of course encounters with what the Psychoanalysts would call the big other, and the big other are the institutions, the law, the state, but mainly the law and the various regulations through which, you know, this society as well tell me who I am and how I should act. Now, psychoanalysis radicalizes. I mean, starts from that position of the struggle for recognition, identity as the creation of encounters between individuals and between individuals and institutions radicalizes that by starting from the basic principle that I come to existence and to life, each one of us comes to existence and to life, through a radical separation. We're being separated from the maternal body, but that does not mean literally from the maternal body. We're being separated from the maternal body from some kind of primal union through our introduction, not the birth, the point of birth, but through the introduction into what psychoanalysts call the symbolic order, language and law. It is language that comes in, into the business of creating identity, and language, words, the fact that my mother says you to me, or Costas, or Alana, starts creating the sense of individuality. This is what, by what I mean separation. You become a separate human being. How do you become a separate human being? Precisely through the introduction to language and to the law, to the law that says, don't kill the father, and so on. That is the psychoanalytical pedigree. The point that I'm making, however, here is this, that this idea of separation, this creation of subjectivity out of a kind of, sort of black hole, uh, lives within the, the center of self a huge gap a sense of lack, a sense of missing. There is a kind sort of unheimly, unhomely, uncanny aspect of our identity. Because precisely we can never go back to a kind of primal union. We can never go back first, of course, because we never had it. When we were united, we didn't have an identity, we didn't have language. So we can never really remember that. But also because it is bad. The law says you should not try and kill yourself. You should not try to go back. Anyway, again, let's leave the technical details. I can give you the reference. The fact is that every society, if one accepts that psychoanalytical premise, and this is a huge effort. I'm just presenting you the theory. I'm not saying necessarily it is true or not. Every society gives us a little reward for the fact that in order to become individuals, we have to go through that absolutely crucial, constitutive, constructive trauma, and we can never escape it. It is in us. There is always something missing. Now, you may not 
feel it like that, you may not think of it in terms of lack or incompleteness or a gap in you, but if that theory has anything going for it, this is who we are. And then society, because societies, different societies, different epochs and so on, have to compensate for that sense of discontent. The discontent that civilization necessarily puts into us in order to make us us. It is not that you know, we can avoid it, it is unavoidable. You have to be discontented in order to become a subject. So civilization or society gives us little rewards, a little compensation. In pre-modern times, it would be the rituals. The rituals of being introduced into family, into society, and so on. I would claim that today, to a large extent, it is human right. It is a little reward that is given to us. And let me give you an example. Say a person of color goes to a tribunal and claims that they have been discriminated against because they were not given a job that they were entitled to according to their skin color. When someone claims a human right, Indeed, when a whole group, a whole group, gay people, queer people, claim that they should have a new human right given. I mean, the two types of claims, certainly legally, is one individual or small group trying to have a recognized right applied to them, or a larger group trying to create a new right, or to have a, a, an existing right that is not given to them, extended to them. When the person of color asks not to be discriminated, discriminated against, he asks two things. First, obviously, he asks for a job that she's entitled to and which is absolutely necessary in order for her to live a life. But secondly, I would say, in that demand, there is a further aspect. Recognize me as a full person with my racial aspect as absolutely constitutive of who I am, not a problem or an addition, an add-on, something that just happened to be there, but as what makes me who, makes me who I am. And I would uh, define, actually, that uh, a right, a human right, every human right, as a demand that links a need of the body or the personality of a person with what exceeds need, with what goes beyond any particular need and necessity and immediate demand, a, a, a demand to be considered by the other person or by the other institution, by the law, as a whole and complete person. To give you another example, according to this theory, when a baby, an infant, asks milk from the mother, asks the tit asks the mother's breast. She asks of two things. First of all, she asks for milk in order to, um, yeah, to, to, to meet a purely physical need. Okay, to survive, needs to eat. But at the same time, the demand or the request for milk is also a request to the mother, love me as a whole. Love me, give me love. Indeed, we would call here desire the desire of the other. The desire of the other is what remains when you subtract need from the demand. So there is something in every desire, in every demand, there is something more than the need. What more is there is what I would call desire. It is the request not only to be given what I need in order to survive and so on, but to also be recognized as a complete person. And of course, that always fails. Because Alana is as incomplete as I am. None of us is complete. We all have what psychoanalysts call the symbolic castration. Both men and women, indeed, uh, you know, sort of uh, men have a bigger problem with it, but we both have it. Indeed, say a joke here boys, uh, girls, uh, sorry, boys are failed girls in the business of castration. But I can't explain that. Now, what happens then with human rights? What happens with human rights? is that if there is little compensation that is given to us, if it is the little something that somehow 
we get from society because in that postmodern sense I explained at the beginning. Because we're never full and no one else is ever complete, but I have to acquire my identity through the other who is incomplete. What happens there is that when I get what I ask for, when I get my job, I immediately want a promotion. When I get my first car, I want to move on to BMW. When I get to the BMW, I want a red sports car, particularly in midlife crisis. So you have this endless escalation of demands, and this is also what is happening today in Western societies. America is leading the way in relation to rights. Every claim, every I want, becomes I have a right to, and then can turn into a proper what I call the legalization of desire, which has as a result the fact that personal human relations, both intersubjective and intersubjective, are being now placed on a legal sort of domain and start undermining the natural habitat within which people. So to finish then, I would say that human rights in relation to that part of the analysis in Western postmodern societies is a totally fissured split practice. On the one hand, they give us protection from the other, the fearsome other, the state or private power if we move into that kind of direction. But on the other hand, they are the way through which we publicize and formalize and legalize a certain, one could say, insatiability 